You know, last week I spoke about uh, certain, some, uh, certain very uh, important topics, ideas. <clears throat> but what I thought I would do this week is just, in a certain sense, uh, is to give you a broad picture of what the whole process uh, is in terms of what God wants. And from that, you could begin to see the timetable <clears throat> of each idea. I had mentioned certain ideas, I think, but a long time ago, maybe a year and a half ago. But uh, I thought it'd be uh, good to, uh, to um, again, to speak about the, uh, the uh, actually it's the Tikkun process. And within that, there's a Messianic process uh, to give you a much broader uh, insight into the timetables of what, what goes on and so on, you know. And uh, in that, uh, to speak about just a couple of events which I thought were very pivotal in terms of moving the process forward. Um, <clears throat> I had mentioned many times that the divine agenda is really, to us, it's really sort of like a chess game. I had mentioned that, uh, the, um, I once read that uh, a professional or a world-class chess player how many moves can see can he see ahead for instance if you move a pawn or let's say something more significant a knight or whatever you know and so on how many moves can he calculate you know figure uh, ahead of what the possibilities of that move is so i once read somewhere that he could uh figure out i mean we could maybe maybe see one or two that's about it but these guys i once read can see 15 moves ahead that's all you have to understand what the combinations and permutations are of that one move it's astounding but these guys lig as they say they lie in this they look at boards and they memorize all kinds of possibilities so obviously that's they can see much further ahead um, but even they are limited to let's say 15 uh, moves ahead uh, the interesting thing about God is that uh, he will move one point one pawn let's say it's an event you see so we don't even understand what the event signifies certainly uh, that's number one uh, we don't even understand the full repercussions of that event let alone understand how this move is now connected to the next move which is connected to the next move we don't see the connections between the moves uh, so obviously we can't really we, we do not really see based on that type of um, uh, scenario where everything is leading but what God can do is something which you can't do in a chess game you know he can move one piece you know 800 years ago and the next piece he can move you know uh, 700 years ago uh, you know and, and so on so how can we possibly connect we don't even live that long to see the connections <coughs> Uh, but in really, in real, really, what goes on is that that the what's important to know is that <clears throat> nothing, and I mean absolutely nothing, happens by accident. Everything is planned, whether we see it or not. Obviously, most of the time we don't see it, <clears throat> but um, <clears throat> so everything is planned because everything is headed in a certain direction. Everything advances the purpose of creation. Every event, and obviously, like I said, we don't necessarily see that event, and we certainly don't see its connection to other events. Uh, so therefore, what's important is to understand what's called the game plan. 
you know, uh, at least in chess, we know the game really is, in the end, is to get the king. You know, uh, uh, chess is an Arab game, and if you know that, it was discovered in, in Arabia, and uh, that's why when you say checkmate, it's really sheikh, sheik, sheikhmate. If I want to use that word, you know, a sheikh we know is an Arab uh, uh, king or whatever, or, or chieftain or leader, or whatever, you know. So when you say checkmate, you're really saying sheikh mate, you know, and, and so on, you know. <coughs> uh, I once read that I think the, the one who discovered chess was some guy named, uh, if I'm historically correct, some guy named Sisi Bendahir. I may be wrong, but this is what I remember, you know. So the, whoever the caliph was wanted to reward him for inventing chess. So, you know, so he said, he said, what would you like? He uh, says, here what I would like. Okay. <clears throat> I want one grain of, of, of wheat. Just one. On the first, because it was six, there was a whole bunch of, uh, you know, 64 squares. So the first grain on the first box. Then on the second box, you'll give me two grains. On the third box, you'll give me four. And then eight, 16, 32, 64. One, right? And so 128. Uh, in other words, what you do is you multiply, uh, you know, you square it. I think that's really what you're doing, you know. Okay. Uh, you're doubling it, whatever, you know. So the king said that's quite modest. It was a big deal, you know. Well, you start out with one grain, you know. So he said, fine. And he began to do it. One, you know, the one, two, four, and so on, right? By the time he got to half the board, he put down one sack of wheat. It was now a whole sack, you see. <clears throat> And he realized, uh-oh, I'm only finished with half the board. I got to double that to two sacks and so on, you know? So the calculation is, is that by the time you get to the 64th square, he would have um, the world's wheat production for the next 2,000 years. No, so history, I don't know, history records what he did to the guy. <laughs> it was easier to declare checkmate and just lop his head off but anyway uh, so therefore <clears throat> so uh, but at least in, uh, in chess we know what happens so therefore it's very advantageous obviously to um, uh, to see the game plan as they say of, of the whole board you know uh, and where's all this headed you see so that already gives you an advantage if you know where it's headed and you have a certain time uh, uh, time framework and so on that gives you an edge in, term, uh, in terms of trying to understand different events. So I thought that would be uh, really very interesting. <clears throat> we know the whole concept, ultimately the whole purpose of creation is what is called tikkun. Tikkun means rectification, we know, or restoration, right? Uh, of the bria of creation. Uh, what that essentially means is that God conceals himself and he wants mankind initially to bring him back. And the way you bring him back is by doing his will. That's basically what the whole process is really all about. In other words, he wants mankind initially, that's what he wanted, to fix the existential state of the universe or of creation. So in the beginning, God is absent from creation, not literally, but figuratively. And then the whole point, of course, is to bring them back, uh, and, and so on. And uh, this, of course, is called tikkun. And there have been different attempts to do the tikkun. 
And it could have been done basically um, at really when you think about it at three points in history. <clears throat> you see, it could be done really any time because the Jews can do the tikkun in one shot if everybody did tshuva, basically. But if tshuva is not happening, then the tikkun basically moves forward and it, it, it could have come at three points in history. First point is the first stage of man is called Adam, man. And he was, of course, created on the sixth day. <clears throat> and he had to do the entire process of tikkun really in one day. Had he done that, then Shabbos would have come, the seventh day, and actually he would have been Mashiach. And that would be the end of the entire world. We would have been born, we would still have been born, but in what's called a rectified state. In any case, Adam, of course, failed. <clears throat> of course, his task <clears throat> was to do what? Was to not to eat from the tree of uh, good and evil, whatever. And he failed. <clears throat> so that was really the first attempt by a man, okay, not a Jew, but by a man to do the tikkun. And he failed. So that is many ways the first, first attempt. The next attempt, of course, was given now <clears throat> to mankind in general. <clears throat> and what God wanted is mankind, not Jews, but mankind, there were no Jews actually, first Jew is Avram Avinu. But what he wanted was, is mankind also to do the tikkun. And they could have done the tikkun. And God gave them 2,000 years. But of course we know they failed. In the first 10 generations they failed, and that was the generation of Noach. Where of course Noach, um, <clears throat> the whole world was flooded with a flood. And of course they, they, they obviously failed. Then they had a second attempt after Noach until Avram Avinu, which is another 10 generations, and they again failed. So <clears throat> in a certain sense, that was the stage called mankind doing the tikkun. So the first stage is Adam doing the tikkun, and the second stage is mankind doing the tikkun. They failed. So then there was another arrangement, okay, where the Rabbanshim gave the task of tikkun to, do, to bring God back by, by doing His will. He gave it to Avram Avinu. <clears throat> and Avram Avinu was 52 years old when the world turned 2,000. So 2,000 years had passed, and Avram Avinu now picked up, he picked up the, uh, the, the slack, so to speak, to do it. And of course, it was not just Avram Avinu, but it was he and his descendants. So that's another stage of trying to do the tikkun. <clears throat> Everything, of course, ultimately culminated in Egypt, Mitzrayim. I'm obviously leaving out a lot of material and when they finished <clears throat> when they left Egypt they had done the tikkun they had almost the, the tikkun was accomplished 99% when they left Egypt <clears throat> and I mentioned you know many times that the tikkun can be done either in mitzvahs which is commandments tshuva which is repentance or yesurin which is suffering and those are the three devices they're called tikkun devices that enable the tikkun to be done, without going into how and so on. In any case, so when they had left Egypt, they had done the tikkun almost. What was left, of course, is to go to Har Sinai and to receive the Torah. And that Torah was the Messianic light. That Torah was not uh, as we have today, uh, but it was really the Messianic light. Moshe Rabbeinu, of course, should have been Mashiach ben Yosef, and the Jews sinned. So at that point in time, 
the, the tikkun was almost complete again, except they failed because of the sin of the golden calf, and therefore everything now reverted, and uh, again man, uh, Jews this time had to go through another tikkun process, or another attempt really at doing the entire concept of tikkun. <clears throat> the next attempt is called the four uh, uh, kingdoms that would subjugate the Jews, Albermalchius. And that, that, of course, is much longer. And that's really what the Jews have been involved with until this particular date. Uh, the Jews have wandered between different uh, nations, specifically four of them. And they have been, of course, subjugated in many ways persecuted by these nations. The first one, of course, was Babylon. The second was, was Persia. Today is Iran. Uh, the third one was uh, Greece, and the fourth, of course, is Rome. And the Jews have been subjected to the uh, dominion of these four, uh, again, trying to go from one nation to the next, observing, conforming to the will of God, and hopefully that would bring the tikkun. We are now, of course, in the last. Uh, we are Rome, and I had mentioned, uh, you know, what that is. Um, and uh, Rome, of course, is... Uh, Rome became uh, Christianity, and Christianity, of course, is Western civilization. And that is uh, Rome today. And uh, Rome, of course, we know came from Edom, and Edom, of course, comes from Esau. So Esau, of course, is the last nation that we have to uh, wander in, and so on, you know. So Western civilization really is the last place of, that the Jews have to go, in that sense. In any case, now, <clears throat> What is important, therefore, is that the Jews wander through the nations and, of course, they, uh, they um, do this tikkun process. And if you recall what I said, that the tikkun process, in many ways, is two things, two ideas. One is to diminish and to remove all the holiness that the Satan has because of the sins of the Jews which I had mentioned many times, and this is what they have to do. And as a result of that, the Satan starves, because even he can only have existence from holiness, which is called the Kedusha. Uh, it's called a, the divine flow of holiness, and every time the Jew sins, he's able to take that. Uh, when he prosecutes the Jew, uh, he is able to urinate or nourish from that Kedusha. And the Jews, ha Jews have to take it out, by one of these three ways, and ultimately, of course, they have to bring down the rest of the Kedusha, and then the world is transformed. Very important concept, which I had mentioned uh, many times and so on. <clears throat> Therefore, at the end of time, when the Jews will almost have completed their Tikkun, it's called the termination stage. That's the end of time. That is the time when the Tikkun is almost all complete, the Jews will have done the job, and what has to be yet be done is the, the world now has to enter into a period of time where there are many historical events that take place, and, uh, and as a result of that, that's called the termination stage. And what that does, it's the stage whereby the Mashiach can enter. That's a very important stage, because we are really in the termination phase, you see. <clears throat> 
uh, which, which uh, I, I will describe. But fundamentally, the termination stage is a stage when the Jews have done almost all of the tikkun. Number two, we, now God is now concerned, the main thrust of his actions is to set the world up where the Mashiach can come. And therefore there are certain what's called uh, requirements for that to happen. And all of this happens in the termination phase. Uh, you see, <clears throat> so the, f the, the, the termination phase has what's called three sub-phases or stages. The first is called Iqbis of the Mashiach, the footsteps of the Messiah. And what that means is that, uh, that when you're in the, if you're in the snow and somebody's ahead of you, right, uh, if you're very close to that person, then you can actually see his footsteps in the snow. The heel of the Mashiach, Iqbis of the Mashiach. And uh, so that's the <coughs> first substage of the termination phase. And what that means, of course, is that the world is now being set up in a way where the Mashiach can make his entry. The, st the next sub-phase or stage is called the Aschalte de Geula, and that is where the Mashiach makes his entry. That's the beginning of redemption. You know, um, it certainly means when the Mashiach is born, means the one who's destined to be the Messiah, the Mashiach, is born. You know, uh, and, and even if he's not Mashiach yet, because that takes also time, just like Moshe Rabbeinu didn't know he was Mashiach, almost Mashiach, for 80 years until God spoke to him. So that's certainly, whether we, when he's born or he knows, that's called the Aschalta de Gula, the beginning of redemption, and that is truly a messianic uh, precursor. That's really what it is. And the main person involved in that stage, of course, is Mashiach Ben Yosef. And he goes through certain um, uh, events, mankind goes through certain events, and after him, then the Mashiach Ben Dovid appears, uh, who of course is a, a, a major messianic figure, and then the world is completely transformed. <clears throat> um, that will last, as we will see, until the end of time, which is the year 6000. We are now at 5778. That will last until the year 6000. And then the world completely is destroyed. Everybody is removed from the world. The world is destroyed. And then the world is transformed into a different type of existence. And that itself takes time for the transformation. And ultimately, uh, as we will see, uh, the world will turn into Ilum Habo, which is the future world, and that's eternal. That's the game plan, you see? So we have a, what we have is what's called a time reference of what happens and how long it will take and what the whole purpose of creation really is. <clears throat> One of the ways of really trying to understand it in many ways, you could take a look at this, is called the creation clock, which I had once mentioned, it's very important. We know that the world will last only 6,000 years that's it. That's the time that God has allotted the, the people, uh, uh, the people, uh, all mankind, and certainly the Jews, to do the tikkun, rectification process. 6,000 years. We know that. How do we know? Because the world was created in six days. Each day is equivalent to 1,000 years. And therefore, just like the world was created in six days, and the seventh day is Shabbos, day of rest, where God ceased his activities in that sense. Um, 
Therefore, mankind's ability to do tikkun will take place for 6,000 years. That means from the beginning to now, the world has to end in 2240. The year 6,000 in the Jewish calendar is the year 2240 uh, in the English calendar. And that's, uh, that's not far from now. What is that? 222 uh, years. Not much, you know, considering that. That means 96% of the world's time has passed. And there's only another 4% left. So clearly, just by that logic, you can begin to see that we have to be very close. Uh, does it make sense that all the prophecies that were stated by the prophets in the Nevi'im, right? Right? Is only good for five years? That doesn't make sense. So much of the Nevi'im, the prophets, right, when they wrote, goes away on explaining the Messianic era. It's hard to believe that that entire era is only be five years, you know. Uh, and, uh, and not only that, but it says in also in the Navi that the old men and old women will yet uh, live and th these people are going to be 150 years old, 200 years old and so on. So clearly we're looking at a time which is obviously has to be very close in order for that to happen. And that's really what it is and so on, you know. So when you think about that, 6,000 years is six days. We can begin to look at that calendar uh, and uh, begin to see very, very important times on that calendar, you know. <clears throat> um, the real time to begin looking at it is really the English year 1240, because 1240 is the year 5000. The Hebrew calendar year 5000 is uh, 1240, a long time ago. But what's interesting about that, on the creation calendar, it's a Thursday night, 6 p.m., you see. And Thursday night at 6 p.m. begins Friday. And Friday is Erev Shabbos. And on Erev Shabbos, we begin to think about and make, make preparations for Shabbos. So therefore, if you think about that, 1240 has to be a pivotal year. That's the year 5000. That's the beginning of Erev Shabbos, equivalent to Thursday night. That has to be a pivotal year. And of course it was, <coughs> as I had mentioned. That was the year <coughs> that, uh, in 1240, that was the year that um, uh, approximately around then, the Zoya was discovered. And the Zoya Kabbalah is really the messianic light on a superficial level. And that's really when it was discovered. But what also happened, which is uh, very interesting, is that that's really the beginning of real science. Roger Bacon lived in that year, and he's considered one of the founders of uh, science because he discarded Aristotle, and he went into the way of what's called experimenting. Uh, you see, <clears throat> what you see from that is very interesting because science is really the study of the internal structure of all events. If you're in biology, it's DNA. If you're in physics, it's uh, the atom and so on, you know. Uh, and what the messianic light really is, is the ability to see the internal structure or the internal principles of phenomenon, phenomena. Uh, so what's interesting is that science itself can only begin if the messianic light begins. And the Zoya says that at that time, 1240, the Omashiach begins to descend, you see. 
So the manifestation of that descent is first is the beginning, the real beginning of Kabbalah, this, uh, the, uh, the finding of the Zoya, and also the concept of science. So it's interesting that science itself is really a reflection of the messianic light, except it deals with the area called physical world, whereas <coughs> Kabbalah deals with the uh, idea of the spiritual world. But both of them offer a glimpse, a look into the underpinnings, the internal structure of all things. Which so, so therefore you see that science cannot begin until the messianic light descends, which of course the Zoya says. And that of course happened approximately year 1240, which is the entire, which is the era um, of, um, of uh, the year 5000, which is Thursday night. You see, so therefore, that is the first very important or very pivotal time. You see. Then the next pivotal time on that calendar, you see, and you begin to see that these events are not uh, haphazard. They, are, they, they, they match up specifically to the creation calendar, you see. So the next time, the Zoya says, that the year in the 5,000, it, it, it says by Noach, in the 600th year of the life of Noach, there will be a tremendous, it says that Niftuch uh, Mayim, the, the, uh, the uh, waters from heaven came out, and Tahoimais, and the waters from the, uh, whatever, the uh, depths came out also. So the Zoya said that really means that in the, uh, that alludes to that in the 600th year of the fifth millennium, which is 5,600, the world will experience a burst of that messianic light, again. And if you think about that, you know, 1840, that's 1840, 5,600, right? And 1840 uh, was the beginning of the entire Industrial Revolution. You had major science uh, at that point. Uh, you had Michael Faraday, and you had uh, 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 many, many di different discoveries that happened at that point. But that is a burst, a spurt of the Messianic light, you see, in 1840. And, uh, and in fact, uh, and the, um, one of them says, the Koshin Samagat says that if the, w if the Jews are worthy, then they will get that spurt in the form of tremendous spiritual advancement. If they are not worthy, then the world will get it. And he says that's what happened. The Jews were not worthy, so therefore that spiritual light, which is the messianic light, came down in the form of science, as opposed to the Omashiach, as opposed to tremendous advancement in spiritual spirituality, whether it be Kabbalah or just tremendous understanding of Torah and so on. You know, so 1840 is the year 5600, which, if you think about it, is approximately Nets sunrise, a Friday morning. Sunrise of Friday morning is light, right? It's the sun. So we see that this is another very, very pivotal time that has happened and so on. But this is all about the, the advancement of civilization and certainly the messianic light, you see. In any case, also around that time, historically, you find that the concept of nationalism took place where all of a sudden different countries united within themselves, like Germany and so on, you know, 
1870 uh, uh, or 1871, Bismarck united all the principalities of Germany. Uh, you had also Italy uniting. You had a lot of, a lot of um, nations began to come together as a nation as opposed to tribes or little principalities and so on. And that, of course, is very important because in the end of time, you see, all the nations will go against the Jewish people, which is actually what's happening today. But certainly the preparation of that happens in those years, uh, which of course is, uh, is dawn, is, uh, is uh, sunrise, sunrise of the, uh, uh, of, of the, in the creation calendar, you see. What ultimately, when, when, when I say that the, the uh, Tikkun process is very much complete, what it really means is that the Sutton is dying. Because he gets his energy from that divine flow, you see. So that's really what happens in the end of time, is, when, is that the fact that the Sutton himself is losing all that incredible divine energy, and therefore he is dying. That's part of the Tikkun process, but that's really what happens in the end, you see. And that creates a lot of, obviously, uh, difficulties and so on. Uh, one of the things that was necessary, unfortunately, is God does not wait, he doesn't, God does not want to bring the Mashiach 10 years before the end. He's not going to do that. What he wants to do is bring the Mashiach far before that. But part of the problem is that whatever measure, when we don't know what that measure is, the Jews have a tremendous amount of debt in terms of sins that they have, although we, we, don't, we, we ourselves don't understand or know what that means, but the Jews are in a tremendous debt. There's a lot of sins that they've done over the thousands of years. So what God does is he has to balance the books. Or bring or pay off the debts, which is justice and so on. We find that by Mitzrayim, Egypt, where the Jews were not worthy of the redemption. So what the Bansham did is he accelerated the process. How? Because when Moshe Rabbeinu came, Pare said, "You know, you guys are lazy. Therefore, you need to gather the straw. Not only you have to make the bricks, but you need to gather the straw to make the bricks." So what they had to do, what the Jews did, is they never slept. They had to go around at night looking for straw. In the daytime, they had to make the bricks. And they could, the, the, uh, the amount of bricks could not diminish. That caused an enormous amount of suffering for the Jews. It must have been horrendous, you see. The question is, why did God do that? Because what we see from Egypt is the acceleration of the process. What God did is he, remember I said that it's suffering... Suffering is one of the tikkun devices. So what God did is, is he accelerated the <coughs> process of redemption by bringing on a tremendous amount of suffering to the Jews in the last year of Egypt. You see, this happens also now. And that in many ways is the, uh, one of the main meanings of the Holocaust. You know, no, nobody really can understand what the Holocaust was about. You know, we, we, nobody knows the mind of God, so to speak. But when you think about it in terms of redemption and what happened in Egypt, the Holocaust, the Shoah, fundamentally is what? The Holocaust is really an acceleration process in order to hurry up the redemption. 
That's really what it is, you see. So what God did is that in six years, from 1939 to 1945, in six years, he brought about suffering which we cannot even imagine. Why? See, the purpose of basically is to accelerate the process of tikkun, and therefore the Mashiach can now come much quicker as a result. Because under normal circumstances, probably what that would have meant is that it would take another 500 years <coughs> for the Jews to uh, be able to uh, uh, have a kapara, have an atonement. But God doesn't want to wait 500 years. So what he did is he, he bunched up a tremendous amount of Yisurin suffering in six years. And what that did is it, it cleared up an enormous amount of justice or judgment against the Jews, you see. And as a result of that, the world now really enters in many ways the, uh, the approach to what's called Aschalta de Gula, the beginning, beginning of redemption. That's really the main idea of the, of the Holocaust. It's an accelerator, just like Egypt has, had an accelerator so the Jews can be redeemed very quickly. The same thing with this, although it's, it's still many, 50, 60, 60 years since the Holocaust, 70 years, whatever. But relatively speaking, it enormously speed, speeded up or accelerated the process, you see. And it did other things also, but, but the, that in many ways is the meaning of the Holocaust and so on. Um, in any case, <clears throat> Um, so therefore, this begins, of course, uh, in 1945, the Holocaust, of course, is over, and now the world becomes incredibly technologically advanced. And there are many things that, remember, what I'm doing is I'm picking pawns, and how you can see that in many ways they all come together to advance the process, you see. Um, uh, what is happening now is that the messianic light is coming down in, in incredible amounts. Uh, and since we're not really getting it, but, uh, but the world is getting it in the form of science, therefore what we begin to see is an incredible amount of scientific advancement. More, pe more things have been done in the, in the world of science than in the thousands of years before. It's just astounding. You know, you walk into one store, electronic store, you know, then you go back next year and it's like the, the, half the stores advanced. You don't even know what's doing there. That's how fast it's happening. Um, uh, um, there are 7,000 journal articles published daily for the advancement of Chochmah. That's, <coughs> that's, the, the, that's the enormous advancement uh, of what's happening out there. Imagine 7,000 journal articles daily. At that, at that level, the, world, the knowledge of the world will double every five and a half years. And this is really all the messianic light coming down to the world, but not to the Jews really, you see. But it's really the messianic light in the form of science, because that's really what the, the science really is and so on and so forth. Uh, so you can imagine if this amount of chokhmah knowledge, wisdom, is coming down, that we have to be incredibly close. 
to the end. You see. <clears throat> so therefore, we have this tremendous uh, proliferation of Chochmah, uh, of course, of the, of the Goyim and so on, you know. Uh, and this continues. <clears throat> Another pivotal point, of course, is Chatzois. Chatzois is noon. You see, we saw 1840, which is basically sunrise, right? And look what happened at that time, right? Uh, noon, which is 1989. September 1989 is another very important point because what it is, it's Friday on the creation calendar clock. It's Friday, right? But noon. And we know that on Friday at noon, the sun begins to, is at the meridian, and the sun begins to set, never to rise again, because it's Friday, it's the last day. Uh, so in September of 1989, one could have predicted that there's going to be an enormous amount of events that will take place. <clears throat> and as a result of that, the world will change. What we know what happened, of course, in, in October, November of 1989, right, uh, um, the Berlin Wall collapsed, right, and that begins the reunification of Germany. Also what happened uh, shortly thereafter, of course, is communism ended, you see. Gorbachev was the last really, uh, 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 whatever they call the uh, prime minister or secretary, whatever, he was the last one, and in 1991, the whole communism collapsed, you see. So clearly, there's a great deal happening. Besides that, also, that's when the Arabs really began the Intifada, the first Intifada, which would begin, which would allow them to express themselves and to really begin to revolt, which is the ultimate clash that they will have with the Jewish people, that's Ishmael, and so on. And that's when they broke out of their inability to really, in some way, to... Um, become a strong force. That's what happened also at that year. Then there was another idea. You see, the problem then is that uh, even though a, a tremendous amount of uh, judgment was accomplished earlier, you see, but still, there's still a lot of things to be paid. There's a lot of sinning, unfortunately, that the Jewish people did. So what happened was, I find to be very interesting you have what's called the Persian Gulf War. Persian Gulf War is an interesting war, you see, because uh, ultimately speaking, um, nobody died except I think one person, Bnei Brak, and it was really a war that was aimed at Israel, and also America in a certain sense, because everybody was worrying about their relatives in Israel and so on, you know. Uh, but how do we understand that kind of a war? Uh, and the way you can look at it is that what was decreed, and remember, this is all part of the Sultan prosecuting the Jews because he's dying. So he's looking for anything. And essentially what he's saying there is that, hey, you know, you want to bring the Mashiach and all that. You know, the Jews are, they're sinning. They're sinning in terrible ways and so on, you know. So they don't deserve this. So again, you have to have what's called an accelerating process where God has to meet justice or judgment. You see, so in many ways, the, the Ketrugim, the prosecutions against the Jewish people, uh, was uh, that they, in many ways, are guilty of uh, their, their tremendous uh, desecration of Shabbos uh, and so on. And therefore, they, um, 
they are perhaps uh, subject to the death penalty because there's a lot of tremendous amount of Chil Shabbos going on. So what, what's interesting is that if somebody is subject to a death penalty, there are four things you can do, not kill them, but there are one of four things that you could do that when they go through that, it's as if they died. That's what the uh, Chazal say, that there are four what's called equivalencies of the death, of death penalty. One is extreme poverty. Another one is uh, a person who is blind. A third one, somebody who has saras. It's not leprosy, but it's for somebody who has to go outside the community. And a fourth uh, penalty, unfortunately, is if somebody who's childless cannot have kids and so on, you know. But there's one more. It's called pachad movis, fear of death. Somebody who's afraid that he's going to die, that itself is a, what's called a death penalty equivalency. So what God did, very interestingly enough, is he subjected the whole the state of Israel uh, to, to fear of death. He had the, uh, per, the, you know, the Gulf War. He had them firing missiles at Israel, and they couldn't respond because America, America said, don't respond. So Israel had to just sit there like a sitting duck. And there was, a, you know, if you recall 1990, what was happening with uh, Saddam Hussein, uh, the whole Israel was frightened. I mean, they could have taken him out, but America said, no, you can't do that because we don't want Saudi Arabia to get mad. The whole thing is insane when you think about that. But ultimately what it meant is that this, this fear of death that Israel was under, and also tremendous amount of uh, fear in America or in other places of the world, because many people have relatives in Israel and so on, that was a kapara, you see. So therefore, what that war did uh, is what was interesting about that war is nobody really died as a result of a missile, which is amazing when you think about that, you know. But uh, what did happen is that uh, th there was a tremendous amount of fear of death, and that was an acceleration of whatever, is, whatever the Jewish people is guilty of, you see. So that also happened just around uh, 1990, uh, which is, uh, of course, Chatzois, midday. So that's what also happened. It's, a, again, an acceleration process to bring about the end. 39. 39 missiles. That's how many. Because there are 39 malachas, activities that you can't do on Shabbos. You see. In any case, uh, there's a lot of uh, ideas that are very fascinating. You can connect with this and so on, you know. But uh, that's also what's called an acceleration process, you see. And then, of course, communism collapses again, and that's also a further movement toward that. And then, of course, after that, um, uh, you had Clinton, he became president. And the meaning of Clinton as president is really very interesting, because the, the fact that he became president itself is a, is a miracle, because he's basically nobody from uh, Arkansas, like whoever heard of him before, you know? And this guy comes out of nowhere to beat Bush uh, as president and so on. But the meaning of that, which I always find very interesting, is that God chose Clinton to be the president. Uh, even though whoever heard of this guy before, you know, governor of Arkansas, I'm like, well, what does that mean, you know? And so on. 
Because what the purpose of Clinton really in the end is to legitimatize the Arabs, which is what he did. Uh, Arafat uh, came to uh, the White House more times than any other statesman. His purpose was to legitimize because the Arabs would not make any move because uh, um, but so what Clinton did is he, he gave them tremendous amount of respect and uh, to Arafat and therefore the esteem of the Arabs rose because ultimately speaking they will and, and as a result of that the, uh, the fact that uh, America gave this such esteem that would mean that um, they would if once they achieve this kind of esteem that would mean that they can now think that they can fight Israel and that would allow them a, an idea give them an idea that they can be victorious you see, so that's really what his purpose was, uh, is the concept of, of Clinton legitimatizing the Arab people, which he did. He's the main reason why, why uh, the Arabs have had such success, uh, especially with Arafat, uh, in, in terms of the uh, esteem that the world holds them in. Then, of course, he had the Oslo Accords, which again legitimatized the Arabs and so on, which is a terrible mistake that Israel did. Uh, of course, because essentially what they <coughs> said is that you have a right in the land of Israel. Suicide, to even state that. Till then, Jews said, hey, you have no right to Israel. But with the Oslo Accords, they legitimatized the Arab claim, which automatically diminished the entire ability of Israel to hold on to, to Israel in the, in the court of world opinion. That's really what happened. But in any case, so that happened. All of this is to allow the Arabs to assume a certain uh, respect and, and status among the nations of the world so they can diminish their fear, of course, of Israel. And that's why many things happened after that. The war in, I think, in 2006, where Israel actually lo not lost the war, but the Arabs uh, succeeded in doing terrible things. It all gives them the delusion that they can now take on Israel, and that's the setup for the final war between Yishmoel and, and the Jews, uh, and so on, you know. Uh, as a result of that, you now see also many other things that are taking place. <coughs> uh, and I had mentioned this previously, but, but ultimately what has to happen now is the beginning of the redemption itself, and that is where Trump now, of course, uh, now begins to side with Israel, uh, this is the tshuva of Esau. That's the next part of the redemption process, you see. Um, and of course, the emergence of Iran is very important uh, because that's a fundamental nation that will war with, uh, with uh, Israel and also, of course, uh, try to, to war with America is the whole emergence of Iran. That itself is interesting <coughs> because how in the world did Iran get so far? And what the Bershom did, which is... Uh, in the uh, uh, in the Persian Gulf War, is he allowed America to be distracted by thinking that the real enemy is Saddam Hussein, Iraq? And that's what they did. So they really fought with um, they 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 allowed um, Iraq, Saddam Hussein. Their focus was on taking him out because they saw it as he was the major uh, enemy, not Iran. Meanwhile, while they were they dealing with Iraq and Saddam Hussein, <coughs> Iran was doing their nuclear stuff. 
you see. So really what happened was, is the Iraq war, besides being a pachat mavas for the Jews, it will also provide a tremendous distraction to America to allow them to believe that the real uh, enemy is, uh, is not Iran, it's Iraq, which of course is not true. The real enemy of the Jews is not Iraq, it's Iran. And uh, that's another purpose of the war, the, uh, the Persian Gulf War, is to allow, to make America think that the real problem is not Iran, it is Iraq. Of course, now everybody realizes the mistake that Bush made, or that Clinton made at that time. But this again allowed Iran to build, and now Iran is set to do whatever <coughs> it has to do, uh, which I had mentioned last week in terms of the Yalkut, the Medrash, and so on, you know. But you notice all of these things happen slowly, but in the end, it's one purpose, is to allow the advancement of a messianic process, and that's what we see. Of course, now we see what? We see, um, uh, of course, 9-11 happened, right? 2001, 9-11. What was that point? That point is to warn America, the whole world, of the radical Islam, of the danger of Islam. Uh, and that's what warned America, um, exactly uh, how dangerous all of this could be. <clears throat> because if you think about it, Osama bin Laden should never have bombed the World Trade Center. He wasn't anywhere near capable taking on America. So why did he do it? Because what, what happens is that the Bershom uh, forced him to do it so that America should be warned and properly prepared to ultimately uh, uh, enter into a war with, the, uh, with certainly Iran. So even 9-11, <coughs> the purpose is really to wake up America as to really what is happening and so on. <clears throat> but what we see now is very interesting because now, uh, well, we, we just saw now that the whole UN uh, went against uh, Israel and they tried to force Trump, of course, to rescind his declaration. But this is, like I mentioned last week, this is a classic Goygamogoy. 70 nations, of course, and I told you that the gematria of Goygamogoy is 70, and the UN really represents all 70 nations. And they will, of course, um, uh, this is the classic prophecy of Yechezkel, you see, because the UN really is the entire world. The UN really is the entire world, and we now have a fulfillment of that prophecy, you see. Again, all of this is to move the entire redemption process forward. So we have that, you see. <clears throat> um, but now we are, the next pivotal moment, of course, is what's called 1230, why? Because when the sun is at the highest point, the meridian, right, you don't see any shadow. The sun is directly above. And that is exactly a very important point. Uh, at, but at 12.30, called Sheish Vachetzi, then the sun begins to lean toward the west, and then it produces a shadow. And that's when you can dab mincha, you see? And that's when halachically becomes what's called benuar bayim. It becomes benuar bayim, which is afternoon, you see? And it says in the Novi, le'is erev or at the time of afternoon, Erev means evening or, or afternoon, whatever, or that's when there will be light. And we are now, on that creation calendar, we are now 1239, past 1230, 
you see? And that is why you're seeing so many <coughs> incredible advancements of the messianic process. That's really what's happening. We're 1239. We're past the 1230 mark, you see. And as a result of that, today, like, you know, it's like almost every day something is happening. So this whole concept of Trump now addressing Israel and advancing there uh, is all messianic, basically. That's how close we are. You know, Edoim, like I said, Edoim, uh, which of course is the America, and I mentioned that it's the Toiv Shebe Esav, the good part of Esav. They need to do tshuva, and that's exactly what happened. And that's why Trump, of course, is the president, because he's the one that is bringing America around uh, to do tremendous, uh, to allow Israel to become what it could become. And he's doing that, and it's going to get much better, because he's going to allow Israel to do many things. And uh, it was, uh, so th this is a very important idea. Also, in the end of time, Yishmuel has to falter and fail. And that started in February in 2011 with, um, in Tunisia and so on, you know. And basically, when you look around the Arab world, most of them are failed states. So this is another very important messianic condition, is that Yishmuel, which has subjugated the Jews for so long, is now failing. And not only that, but Yishmuel also, like I mentioned, is also doing tshuva is also repenting, and you see that slowly with Saudi Arabia coming around to, uh, <coughs> to support Israel. And they'll probably do that openly, and so on. Which is very good, because ultimately that means that Abbas will become irrelevant. Actually, he is irrelevant. Because uh, when Trump came out and said that Israel and Jerusalem is Israel, Jerusalem is Israel, and, and so on, you know, what that essentially does is uh, negate the whole Arab claim that Israel is occupied territory. And the whole concept of occupied territory is, is absurd. Because uh, Arabs never had a state in Israel that we should occupy, you see. If anybody ever analyzed all of this, all of these claims based on reality, international law and reality, they, the whole thing would fall just like a, you know, just like a, a, a house built on sand. But nobody cares, you see. And that's because the, the world is still fundamentally still anti-Semitic. Therefore, they don't look at reality. And in the end, God is going to have a field day with these guys. Because he's going to say, I don't understand something. <coughs> Actually, I do understand something. Uh, you say that you adhere to the law, right? And that you look for evidence, so on. How could you say that Israel is occupied territory when there was no such thing as an Arab state? What are you talking about, occupied? And the nations of the world, they have no concept of what the judgment will be when that judgment day comes against them. Because what they say is so thinly uh, absurd. What they say is so easy to disprove that they, they, uh, they, they I mean, you, you can always feel sorry for them, what's going to happen when that comes, you see. But most of it, basically, is the concept of what? Of anti-Semitism. That's what it is. It's all it is. I mean, whoever heard, you know, whoever heard that a nation, uh, that the United Nations deny a nation the ability to have a capital, which is the true capital. Everybody knows Jerusalem is, belongs to Israel. Everybody knows that. That uh, even in the New Testament you have Jerusalem. 
you know, where, where what's his name, overturned the money changes. It, 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 the, the Christian Bible talks about Jerusalem being Jewish and the temple. So how do they deny even that? that, that and the UN says that Israel has no... You know, it used to be in the, in, the, in the past where the UN used to deny different parts of Israel. You know, uh, Jerusalem is not Israel. You know, the Golan is not Israel. <coughs> whatever, you know. Now they just say, hey, the whole land is occupied. You know, they, 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 they've hit a new low. <clears throat> you know, this is unheard of. They, they know Israel belongs to the Jews. Everybody knows that. Besides the, the Torah itself, Christianity itself says that. So what has happened is the UN has reached a new low where they just deny all of Israel. Hebron is not Israel, right? It's all occupied. Jerusalem is occupied. And everything is illegal and so on and so forth. It's just beyond belief. Well, it's just beyond belief how they uh, can uh, take, take a position which is so absurd. You see. <clears throat> so therefore, <clears throat> Edoim is doing tshuva, which is of course the Toiv Sheba Esav, the good part of Esav, which is America. Yishmuel is collapsing, but, but Yishmuel itself, the part that hasn't collapsed, itself is doing tshuva, or about to do tshuva. Arafat is being, becoming, not Arafat, he's, he's irrelevant because he's dead, but uh, Abbas is becoming irrelevant, which we see. Uh, happening now uh, and ultimately speaking which I had men mentioned last week is that the, the next phase is what's called the transition phase with the era of Rav those Jews that refuse to allow spirituality to, to uh, dominate and so on you know where they say of course that the, uh, the Jews are the Jewish people because of the culture you know that's why we're Jewish we have the land of Israel, the culture, uh, but, they, but they, they of course will never say that the whole concept of being Jewish really is we are, God has chosen us to represent him and to bring him close to, 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 uh, to mankind. They will never say that. So they have to go also. And that's, how that's going to happen is, is, is in many ways very interesting, but I believe there will be an individual uh, that will, the air of Ra will collapse and there will be an individual and he's called the transition figure because after him comes Mashiach and he will slowly convert the Jewish people uh, and certainly bring them closer to God and that's a transition figure uh, be before the, uh, the Mashiach come and, and so on you know and, um, and once that happens then I think the, the, uh, I think the Jewish people will be in shock because right now it looks like these guys can never leave. Uh, this whole concept of Erev Rav, these people who deny the authenticity and the uniqueness of the Torah as that which makes Jews unique. Their overthrow will be incredible and everybody's going to be stunned and watch that happen. And the uh, same thing with the entrance of a, of, a tra of a transitional figure who will then begin to uh, change Israel and I mentioned last week, it's not hard. All you have to do is reintroduce the Torah to high school kids in Israel, you see. And all you have to do is fund the Kirov organizations. I mean, they can do it, you know, because they're very successful and so on, without compelling anybody to be religious. And I believe that's coming up next, uh, because we already have 
uh, America, we have uh, the Arabs and so on, but the next thing is really the fall of the year of Rav. And when that happens, then, uh, you know, get your plane tickets. Because uh, I believe the Mashiach is then right around the corner. Uh, and then, of course, you'll have the uh, era of Mashiach. Uh, you'll have the rebuilding of the Beis Hamikdash. Then the whole world will recognize Israel, you see. And uh, that's really happening now. With America recognizing Israel, that it's their land and their capital, then the status or the stature of Israel rises in the nations of the world. And that's really, in many ways, very important. Because when Jews do become spiritual, since the Israel has r risen in stature among the world, then that Judaism itself will rise in stature. It's all about getting to take. It's all about taking the Jewish people from the from the dumps, from the degradation that they have suffered for thousands of years, and to restore the greatness of the Jewish people. That's really what we're watching. So Israel is doing that in a certain sense in terms of many areas. You know, there's uh, the agriculture and water conservation and science and medicine and cybersecurity and so on. They are rising. But now that America has recognized Israel, of course, you know, uh, and the, the fact that um, uh, that will raise the stature of the Jews to the entire world. So when the Jews do become spiritual, when that nation again turns toward God, then the world will recognize that because the Jews will have had that tremendous stature and so on, you know. And this is all happening in our time. You see, and it's, remember I said, the, it's, being, it's happening and it's accelerating because it's now after 1230. It's 1239. Like I said, it says in the Novi, right? Or at the time of evening, which is after 1230, or there will be light. And uh, that, this is what's happening now. So what do we see? We see an entire panorama of the times of when Mashiach comes, we see the entire panorama of how the, the, the whole 6,000 years has been nothing more than an attempt to, uh, to do the tikkun, which is to bring God back, uh, to serve God, and uh, to allow the nations also to realize that. The only thing is that there have been di different actors on the play. In the beginning was Adam, Horishan, the first man, then you had mankind, then you had Avram Avinu, you have Moshe Rabbeinu in Egypt, and then we have to go through the four nations that will subjugate us to do the same concept of Tikkun. Uh, the termination phase begins with, as I mentioned, the footsteps of the Messiah, which really begins in 1840, you see? And then when you hit 1990, uh, you have what's called Chatzois, midday, and we are about to encounter the Aschalta de Gula, we are about to enter that uh, period of time called the beginning of redemption. And that's really what we're watching. And that's why almost every day there's something incredible going on. It's like the news never stops, you know. Um, somebody just told me that there's a whole, there's a, a, a lot of demonstrations going on in Iran. That's also incredible. You know, Iran, you know, and I think Iran is afraid to do something because they knew they can get away with killing these people in the time of Obama. Because Obama, like, you know, forget about Obama. He was, you know, I've never seen such a wimp and so on, you know. But they know that Trump 
is looking and he's probably taking names as he as he said you know <coughs> so they're probably worried because if they come out looking too barbaric and killing these people something's going to happen and they're worried uh, and so on so this is a, an, another development but every day there's another development happening but in the end this is the direction it has to go Tikkun has to be complete uh, God's will must happen there's no way to get around it and um, uh, uh, this is the, uh, this, uh, the staging I believe we're about to enter the Aschalte de Geula the uh, beginning of redemption and we are now seeing it and so on you know and the real key concept next is the fall of the era of Rav. And we know the era of Rav basically is in America, it's the reform, the conservative movement, reconstructionists. In Israel, it's fundamentally, unfortunately, the, uh, the, uh, the government of Israel, the Supreme Court, the media, these are all era of Rav. And they, in many ways, they are destroying, not, they're not destroying Israel, they're not destroying Jews. They are destroying Judaism, you see. And, then the, you know, and, that, and that's the whole problem, because the essential concept of a Jew is Judaism, is his religion. And they, of course, are completely in many ways either against it, uh, and uh, certainly uh, uh, if they can, if the opportunity presents itself, they will, of course, uh, go against the Torah. The guys like Lapid and so on and so forth. And these people are horrendous and so on. And the problem is that, you know, Israel does not see itself as a spiritual nation. Israel sees itself that it has to adapt, become a copy of the world. That's why Israel prides itself on museums, culture, art, all this kind of stuff, you know, artist colonies, whatever, you know. That's what makes them pri pr proud, because that's what they see. Israel has an incredible inferiority complex where it's always trying, trying to run after the nations of the world. That's really what it's trying to do. And that's why the more culture that they get into, they feel good about themselves. But, they, the, but the, the uh, Israel people don't realize that the greatest contribution that they can give the world, of course, is, is, uh, is spirituality. And that's really, in the end, what they have to do. And slowly it's turning that way, you know. So we have to hope that it's going to happen very shortly, which I think it will, and so on, you know, because like I say, you know, we're after 1230, we're now headed into that era of uh, where God wants the uh, spirituality be, to be the dominant force of the Jewish people. And we are seeing this happening every day. In any case, so this is sort of like the panorama of world history uh, and how everything fits in that way. And even if we don't know the pieces of the chess game, we don't know how each thing necessarily fits into that scheme and how the next thing and, and how they're all connected, but we can see checkmate. That we can see. Checkmate is the death of the Sultan. That's checkmate, you see. And the Jews will have brought that about. And once the Sultan dies, then that's the end of evil that's the end of disease, it's the end of almost, it's the end of every negative thing you can imagine. That's it. And, no peace. and well, peace, when you think about that, peace is really the result of an understanding of reality. That's really what it is. The, the disease that mankind suffers from, 
is really ignorance because they don't really know the real reality. The real reality is God, the Torah, the Jewish people, that the whole world ultimately has to, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, bring in a, a, a redemption. It's a redemption process. And therefore, most people think that there's somebody that they can uh, uh, dominate the world, they can do whatever they want. They're into money and power, you know, and, and honor and all this kind of stuff, you know. That's ignorance, you see. Once man realizes the true reality, which is spirituality, then automatically there's peace because he knows his place. So that's really what we suffer from. Ignorance. Ignorance of reality. And the whole concept of redemption in the end is to make mankind aware of reality, which is ruchnius, spirituality, God, and so on. That's the whole uh, point of it. And once a mankind realizes reality, then everything changes. Everything. There's peace, there's prosperity, there's blessing, everything, and so on. And that's really what we're headed into. Uh, but it's like I say, right now we're in the middle of this, Chevli uh, Mashiach, and uh, it's, 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 it, gets, uh, it really gets rough and so on, you know. But in the end, we could see what the, uh, the end is, even if we don't understand the individual pieces, the individual moves, and the connection between all the moves. But at least we know what the end is. The end is the redemption, not only of the Jews, it's the redemption of all mankind when they realize the terrible mistakes that they've made, and uh, then, then there can be peace. That's ultimately what there will be. Peace and prosperity and security and, uh, and the nations realizing that everything that has happened in the 6,000 years, whatever, has been for only one purpose, and that is to bring God back. That's it. It's a panorama. Any questions? Yeah. Um, when a Kesh Baruch takes care of Hatayim, when he takes what? Takes care of Hatayim throughout history. Yes. But it doesn't mean Hatayim stops. It doesn't mean Hatayim stops. Yeah. But, you know, unless the person, even in each, in Sadiq, I'm paraphrasing, but so being that the books have to be balanced perfectly by the by Olam Haba, so to speak. So does that mean that eventually it's going to have to be a chufa movement or something where at the time of Mashiach people are going to have to be perfect, or is there going to just be sort of like an equilibrium? Or well, you see, that's why there's a Mashiach Ben Yosef and before Mashiach Ben David. There are different reasons, but one of the things is that Mashiach Ben Yosef is the one who will allow everybody to become spiritual so they can all atone, and then Mashiach Ben David can come. A chufa movement. Yeah. There's going to be a massive tshuva movement, yes. And it's going to boggle the mind how it happened. Nobody's going to believe it when he does, you see. So, Mashiach bin Yosef is really, uh, I would use a funny expression, Mashiach bin Yosef is a halfway house. You know? Funny expression, you know. But uh, it's a halfway house in the sense that, well, there has to be a time when everybody's wake, waking up, you know, and then everybody's doing tshuva, you see. And as time goes on, then they will have concluded their tshuva, you know, kapara. And then in comes Mashiach ben David, you see. So that's really what Mashiach ben Yosef does. He's the one who transforms the world from, you know, a lack of spirituality 
total spirituality. And that's when Mashiach ben David enters. You see, so that's, that's really what it's all about, so, you know. In some ways today, people, I think, realize something's going on. I think and everybody realizes something going on. And it's easier to, in a certain respect, to believe the promises God made to bring us back to Israel. We could see it. Yeah. When you think about Jews in the Middle Ages and Davin the faith, there was no light at the end of the time. No. The faith those people had is mind-boggling. Well, that was they their were test. They hopeless situations. Yeah. Now, in the Middle Ages, it was terrible for the Jews. Uh, and uh, the, But that was the Nisoyen. And they kept the faith. It's, it, it's yeah. unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah, the merit that they accumulated because of that, we don't even have, we, we have no comprehension. But that was meant to be. God put, you know, he puts, puts Jews in different situations, and in those situations, he has to act in a way that is appropriate. It's halachic, it's appropriate, and so on. Yeah, oh yeah, sure. That's uh, well, the, the faith that they had uh, is, is really incredible. They just gave their lives for Torah. How many people did that, and so on, you know? Anything else? Fine. Next week? Mashiach? Last week. What's that? So last week? Yeah, week. next week is, my, is the, I'll be giving a shiach, it's the last week, and then I'm off to Eretz Israel for a while, uh, you know, for eight weeks, and then I'm back right after Purim, you know, and we'll just continue. Who knows what after Purim is going to be? Because remember, we are headed for very important months, you see. Teves, we're, we're in Teves now, right? Uh, and then we have Adar, uh, Shvat. And uh, I think there's a Zoya, is it a Zoya? That says, Rishchide Shvat is a Messianic day. It's a Yom Geula. It's interesting. Then you have Adar Shvat. Tuba Shvat is very important because that's the reversal of, good, of evil to good. So that's, what, that's when the flowers begin to, the fruit begins to blossom. That means something's going to happen, uh, you know, certainly in uh, Shvat, and, and then Ador is the month of Ben Yosef. Ador is the month of Yosef. Then Nisan is the redemption, you know. I got to my luggage. <laughs> yeah, who knows, but there, there's no question that we are in a very transformative period. There's no question about that. Just the last week, two weeks has been incredible, what's been happening, you know. So it's, certainly, it's certainly happening. In many ways, it's a tremendous merit to be alive today, you know, because we're seeing, you know. On the other hand, it's uh, very difficult because we've witnessed so much uh, terrible antagonism, you know, toward the Jewish people and, 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 and so on. But, uh, you know, but it, but it is an incredible thing to watch. They find uh, anyway. God's a four missiles. At a memorial service, <coughs> even for the uh, Israeli soldier that yeah. was captured in Gaza, they aimed it at that memorial okay. service. Okay. Different Three of them were shot down by the Iron Dome, and one of them landed. Okay. The, these are just. It, it just keeps happening every day. Yeah, okay. Yeah. But that's not the key. The key isn't the individual events. The key is to watch the scenario of Esau doing tshuva, Yishmael doing tshuva. Uh -huh. Uh, you know, the Arabs collapsing in that sense, you know, and the Arabs are falling. That's, that's the key to watch, you know, don't, 
Don't focus on an individual missiles or whatever. That's distractions, you know. The key is watch the what's called the large uh, requirements, large movements that have to happen, you know. Don't get distracted. Take a basketball game, you know. What's the incredible thing about a basketball game or a football game? Everybody, right, there's only one thing that anybody wants to know in the game. And what's that? Where's the ball? That's it. Everything else is irrelevant. You know what I'm saying? It's amazing when you think about that. Where's the ball? You see? And in football, right, where's the ball? Because the ultimate thing, they have to know to be able to get it all over the goal. And we know what goal, and wait, and we know what the goal really is. It's it's not goal. It's the goal, right? It's the redeemer. That's what they have to keep the eye on, right? And so on, you know. Okay, soon.